At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approached data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. Today we are talking all about accommodations. Now this is a huge topic and there's a lot to unpack. Today I'm chatting with Tim Crunchman, who is a former special education teacher and administrator. Tim founded his own company, Action Driven Education, which provides training and supports on just this topic. So we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk really about why accommodations are helpful and necessary, how to overcome any issues with collaboration in regards to accommodations. And then Tim shares the four variables to really making accommodations work. I love all his examples. He really helps you visualize these things in action on how to find those just right accommodations that can really help each child be successful in their environment. So let's go ahead and hear from Tim. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to chatting about accommodations. I think this is such an important topic and something we really don't discuss enough. 
I agree a hundred percent. That's actually why I'm doing what I'm, I do right now. We're trying to uh, help teachers and parents to understand the value of accommodations. I, I observed over the years that they just seem to be misunderstood and, and often a point of uh, contention, I guess you can say. Um, so I'm out there trying to change that. So thanks for letting us talk about it a little bit today. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the misunderstanding, right? We're just not even getting it. So to kind of rewind for a minute, why are accommodations helpful and really necessary for so many of our learners? Um, it's interesting. I, I like to use the word around when I talk about accommodations. And the reason that I use that word is because as a special education teacher, um, way too often I had general education teachers or parents even saying to me, um, you know, why do we use this accommodations? Not helping a child become better at filling whatever their need is. And that's kind of not the point of an accommodation. An accommodation is to support the child around their need. So in other words, it's to minimize its impact um, and that's exactly what the word around helps a, helps a parent and a, and a teacher understand, that it supports the child around their need. It doesn't necessarily help make them better reader or help them with become better at social skills or whatever their need is. It's designed to support them around their need. So um, I think that in my mind, when I think about the function or the purpose of an accommodation, it's to effectively support the child around their needs so that it's not not impacting them as they work to learn or take tests or whatever they're working to achieve that day. Yeah, that's a great way to think about that. And, you know, you made a point earlier that kind of struck my interest because I agree with you. I mean, when you say it that way, every educator would be like, yeah, we're on board with this. Of course we want this. But accommodations can become a source of contention between teachers. And why is that? Why do you see that happening? I mean, I think sometimes that there's um, some of the misunderstandings around accommodations. One of them is, is the idea that they make things easier for a child. Um, and mm-hmm. that's just simply not true. Um, we, we talk about the fact that accommodations make things accessible, not easier. But when you think about education, um, unfortunately, we're still facing a little bit of that factory mindset where everything's supposed to be the same for every child. And so many teachers still kind of feel that way. Um, you know, we're, we're working every day and that's getting a little better. Um, you know, every time we, 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 uh, explore the idea of accommodations and how they work. But so many times teachers still feel like they have to be doing the same thing for every student. And, and that's just simply not true. So the idea that accommodations do make a change um, in terms of the education that a child receiving or the way they're accessing their education, um, it, it kind of gives the, the feeling that it's, that it's um, not being fair. And, and that's yeah. just simply not true. So those three things, that idea that things make it easier, the idea that things should be equal or fair, I guess, you you know, you hear those two words kind of tossed around and they're certainly different words, but um, uh, those types of things are what lead to the uh, the idea that the teachers and, and sometimes parents can be resistant to accommodations and it can, and it can cause uh, those disagreements, I guess you can say, or, or misunderstandings. Yeah, I hear that a lot too. Well, how will I explain to other students why he gets something different? It doesn't seem fair. And that word, you're right, is often thrown in there. And it often comes back to like the culture of the classroom. Like it shouldn't all be the same for everyone, even if nobody needed accommodations, which would never happen. A hundred percent. I mean, the idea of individualization for every child where every child is getting what they need to be successful today. If the classroom culture is firmly founded on that idea, then yes, there is no one size fits all in that mindset other than the idea that everybody gets what they need. 
Um, yeah. You're right about that. And, and changing that culture just sometimes means, uh, you know, education, helping people to become informed and, and clear up misunderstandings. And that's kind of what we're working to do. So it can become quickly overwhelming with how many different types of accommodations there are. There's obviously like unlimited ways you can accommodate an environment, a setting, an activity. And how do you know where to start with this? How do you know what types of accommodations are right for each student? <laughs> well, that's a big million dollar question. question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a big <laughs> Give question. Give me your elevator how pitch on time, that. <laughs> how much time do we have today? <laughs> um, now, I mean, I have to go back and, and you're right. There are um, an unlimited number of ways to... Um, uh, adapt or accommodate a, a child in a classroom. And, uh, you know, the, the point of how we select accommodations begins with exactly what you say when you say a child. So we put the child at the center of the conversation, obviously. We're not thinking about things that we've done for other kids. We're not thinking about anything outside of the child, individualized, right? Um, so obviously, you know, when you start to think about the fact that we're individualizing, focusing on one child, then some elements start to become uh, kind of clear. I'm going to throw them out. We can talk about them, you know, maybe a little more in depth here in just a minute. But in our mind, um, in my mind, uh, as teachers, what I think we need to focus on are really four variables. Um, the first variable is the child's strengths. Um, the second variable are the needs of the child. So in other words, if the child's struggling to read or struggling with a sensory impairment or something like that, then that's a child's need. Okay, so it's, again, it's specific to the child. That need then um, can become a little more specific in the third variable, which we call the degree of need. That's kind of the data, right? So we talk about um, maybe like reading fluency, for example, and the data that goes along with reading fluency is words per minute. So how fast or how slow does the child read? So um, the need and then the degree of need for that child um, are specific to them. And then the fourth piece of information, which I think really helps with that earlier conversation where we talked about resistance with teachers, is the idea that an accommodation should be designed to fit a teacher's instructional practices. In other words, it's designed to fit in their setting. So mm -hmm. in our mind, we have four variables, strengths, need, degree of need. Those are specific to the student. And then the instructional setting is, is individualized to the teacher. So those four variables are what we try to use to kind of identify um, what makes um, a perfect accommodation. I love that model that you're considering, you know, primary that child, but that last piece is really important too. that, like, what does the instructional setting look like? Because, you know, I'm sure as special ed teachers that have collaborated with classrooms, we've all been there like, Hey, I've got this great idea. And if, if that teacher is not sold on it, it's just not going to happen. Like you have to get something that works in their environment with their style, or it's just not going to happen. Right. I, I always, th I always say, you know, as special education teachers, we focus on the individual, right? And that's kind of like, it's in our backpack of, of what we, we focus on, right? The individual student. And it's funny, we tend to lose a little bit of that when we think about our colleagues, but we really shouldn't. We shouldn't be looking and thinking, you know, what works for everybody. No, we should be looking at that teacher and saying, for whatever reason, if an accommodation isn't working in their room, um, then we should be looking at them as individuals and saying, well, what we're doing here isn't working. So let's focus on them specifically as well. And that's where that collaboration and that idea that a gen ed teacher has a voice in the IEP meeting comes into play. You know, if we're going to go in there and say all gen ed teachers must be doing this, um, which in some cases does have to happen. I mean, I'm real about that. 
But if we think about that teacher individually, then we recognize the value of their voice. And we also recognize that when there is resistance, there's another way to tear it down. And that is by seeing that person as an individual. For sure. And that teacher knows about, you know, the competing contingencies in that classroom, about the other students, about, you know, Mm -hmm. the specific academic needs that like maybe as the special ed teacher, you don't have as, as close of an eye on because you're not in there every minute of every day. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when you think about the variables of an instructional setting, um, that could be anything from the pedagogy, the practices of that general education teacher, you know, are they a, a technology savvy person that uses a lot of Google Docs and online resources and stuff like that? Or are they a more quote unquote traditional teacher that relies a little more heavily maybe on lecture style or something like that? You know, by focusing on their style and the ways that they teach we can see how a child's need is going to be impacted by that methodology, by that practice of the teacher. Um, so, you know, that's a bet their, their pedagogy is one of the variables, but then it also spans all the way across, as you mentioned, to the other students that are in the classroom, to whether or not there's a paraprofessional that's available to go in and support that classroom. You know, when we talk about the variables of an instructional setting, it really is a puzzle. And when we think about each of those pieces individually, we can see maybe where accommodations can fit that puzzle piece versus just being, you know, out there and having no place. And and that's why it feels like it doesn't fit because sometimes they just don't. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Okay, so let's go back to that first variable, the strengths, and start there. So what do you look at first when you are approaching a student or a situation, and, and how do we analyze and identify their strengths? Yeah, I, I laugh about strengths every time it comes up because I remember being taught um, very, very early in my career um, that the reason we start every IEP meeting is so we say something nice about a student. <laughs> and, and I think, you know what, it's that I don't disagree with that idea. I mean, it, we all like to hear good things about ourselves, right? And we all like to start the conversation on something positive. So that's there's some truth to that. But at the same time, we have to realize that the reason we start IEP meetings with student strengths is because we're supposed to be using their strengths. You know, when you think about it, it's kind of the natural way of the world, right? When I get against something I'm not so good at, something that's challenging to me, I tend to think, how can I use my strengths um, to overcome this need, right? This challenge. Um, It's just the natural way that the world works. It's what we do when we're, you know, being ourselves, when we're just being people in the world. So, you know, student strengths, we like to say, are we, we can use student strengths as leverage. In other words, how can we use strengths to move the student's needs? So um, as a quick example off the top of my head here, you know, if we think about the idea that a student might be really good at using technology, then we can use that strength of technology in our accommodations. You know, um, if we have the old text read to students accommodation, then we might consider using an app called Prismo Go or even one of the new Google Docs that actually uses technology to read a document to us, right? So by using the student's strength strength, uh, as leverage, they're good at technology, we can offset that in their need 
um, as we consider the way the accommodations are implemented in a classroom. So um, we like to say student strengths should be used as leverage and should be matched and balanced in that accommodation. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, about like the leverage component, that it's mm-hmm. going to just help bolster that up. Right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually what we find is we, it helps to make it more likely that the accommodation is going to work. If a student is able to use their strengths, um, then it's because it's so natural. It's a whole lot more likely that the student will not only enjoy that accommodation, but it'd be something that they can enjoy and, and actually use because it matches their strengths. It just fits, right? Yeah. And we see that in our own lives, like things that we try to force that like we just don't like, even in like healthy eating habits. Like I'm going to eat, you know, I'm going to do all, no carb. And you're like, well, I don't even really like doing that. It's not going to stick for that long, you know? So that kind of happens naturally with everyone. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, it's definitely the way if if we're reflective of ourselves, I always like to say that we can become the best teachers in the world by focusing on ourselves, on the things that we do naturally and just being real about it. You know, and if you think about it, next time you're doing something or facing something that's a challenge to you, consider what you do to fix that problem. And you're going to find that you will use your strengths as leverage. Yeah. Okay, so we got our strengths as leverage, and then we Mm -hmm. move on to the needs, which is like Mm -hmm. kind of the meat and potatoes of everything, I'm assuming. It is, absolutely. I mean, need is definitely the meat and potatoes. But, you know, as a special education teacher myself, when I think about accommodations, you know, I realize that there's kind of like families or groups of accommodations, right? So I mentioned, um, you know, a sensory impairment uh, um, need for a child. You know, there's a certain group of accommodations that are really good at, at helping to meet that need. Um, you know, there's others that are great accommodations, but because they're not aligned to the need, um, they're really not appropriate. Uh, we like to talk um, about what we call just right accommodations. And these variables, strengths, needs, degree of need, and fit to a teacher classroom are the, accom- are the variables to just right. Now, when you think about just right, as in Goldilocks and the three bears, right? So, you know, when we were reading Goldilocks, you think about she goes in and she finds a bowl of porridge and one's, one bowl is too hot and one bowl is too cold. Okay. When we think about accommodations, that suggests then that some accommodations might provide too much support and other accommodations might provide too little support. But that alignment to support and finding just right means that we're paying attention to their need. In other words, does it fit the need? It's not just something we're doing to write, to fill in a space in the IEP. No, it's actually aligned to the need. Um, And that means we're bringing to mind this family or group of accommodations that are specifically aligned to a need, not just doing something for the sake of doing it, because that could be providing too much or too little support. And you've kind of seen, I'm sure, that mentality of like, oh, I'm just going to click a bunch of the accommodations on here because I can't hurt, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Right. No, right. A hundred percent. We... We realize that when we support a child around their need, you know, the function of the accommodation, support the child around their need, um, that means that we are considering the fact that the accommodations are enough, enough support to engage the child. Now, anyone that's spent any amount of time teaching recognizes that that word engage is really important because if I'm not provided enough support, then I might become disengaged because I become frustrated, right? So you pass out an assignment to me that's not fit to my needs. I just throw the assignment away because I can't do it. I'm frustrated with it. So that causes me to become disengaged. But at the same time, as you were mentioning, 
if you go through and you just check 15 accommodations for the sake of having something in the line, then you're providing too much support. And that causes the kid to become dependent, right? They realize, oh, I can just sit back and do nothing because all these accommodations are going to do everything for me. That idea of providing too much support, checking too many accommodations, means that we're not fitting it to the child specifically. We're just throwing stuff out there to, to do things. And that's not any more beneficial than providing too little support. It both In both cases, it, it causes the child to become disengaged. And like no child or adult even is going to be like, oh gosh, you're giving me too much help. Let me do this hard thing on my own. Like it's in our, in our human nature to be like, sure, give me the help. I'll take it. Right. Yeah. Right. Just sit back and say, Hey, have at it. Right. Yeah. You can do as much as you want to for me. I'll just, I'll just show up physically and be here and then not become engaged in any other way. And then we wonder why they don't do so well. Maybe they don't retaining information or whatever. We're not encouraging them to dig in and do the work we're doing yeah. it for them. So yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. We'll just sit back and let it ride. So that's really where, you know, the degree of need or the data really comes into play to know where that just right is. Yeah. Degree of need is a huge um, variable. And, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why at the beginning of every IEP, we start with the idea of putting out their present levels, right? In other words, what, what are the numbers? What are the numbers that tell us how much of a problem this need may be? Um, you know, reading fluency is just such an easy way to talk about because it it's so concrete. But any, any, any need that we have, we can see it with data. And data tells us, okay, how often is the child engaged? Well, I went in and I did a, a checklist for every for a 30 minute time period, and I see that they're 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 disengaged 25 of those 30 minutes, right? Um, through the data. And that data shows us how big of a problem it is. So if we're paying attention to degree of need the data, then we can do two things. First of all, we can select accommodations that are fit to that data. So for example, since reading fluency was what I started with, I'll use that as, I'll continue using that as an example. If I have a child that's getting ready to take a test, um, let's just say it's a social studies test, and they're expected to do some reading on this social studies test, but their data shows that they're word, reading at 60 words per minute. Well, 60 words per minute is slow, but it's not like painfully, painfully slow. So we might need to give that child extended testing time. In other words, we realize they're going to read slow. We just give them some extra time to take a test, right? Versus mm -hmm. if the data, the degree of need shows the child is reading at 20 words per minute. Well, 20 words per minute is slow enough that we realize you're not likely going to understand what you just read. So in that case, I may need to read that test to the student. So the accommodation may become test read to students. See, reading fluency was the need, but the degree of need, 60 words per minute or 20 words per minute, told me which accommodation was appropriate based on how big of a problem it was. So we like to say that the degree of need helps to make that family of accommodations that are aligned to reading fluency, helps me understand which one I select based on their degree of need. It's a great sales pitch for data, which I appreciate. Um, oh. You know, as a behavior analyst, data is like my love language. And I found that, you know, the academic data is easier for people to get on board with. And I, and I know the overwhelm and workload of a teacher, but sometimes getting on board with the behavior data, like you said, being off task, on task, things like that is, is hard, right? I've got 28 kids on my caseload. I can't take data on this kid, how long he's on task. How do you overcome those conversations where we have that like resistance to taking data? I, I love data. Um, I, 
I, I find that uh, the best way, the best way to help, especially gen ed teachers, to understand the value of data is to couple it with the word time because it's interesting. Way too often, the teachers will say, I don't have time to take that data, but it can be turned around in a different way to understand it differently. And that is to say, you don't have time to waste. In other words, I need to know as a teacher that every second of the time that I'm spending is being well spent, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm implementing a new accommodation, I need to know that that accommodation is working because heaven forbid I spend, you know, five minutes even a day pulling together the materials I need for an accommodation or, or fitting this accommodation to my setting or whatever I'm doing with this accommodation. If I'm spending five minutes of time and I don't know if it's working, that's time that's wasted. So yeah. when we think about data, if I put data in front of you, I can show that your time is not being wasted because the data is showing that the child's education has been impacted or changed, or in this case, hopefully improved by the fact that I implemented an accommodation. So I know as a special ed teacher, my time, my day is bookend full, right? Beginning to end, every single moment of the day is full. It's the same way for gen ed teachers, administrators, and everybody else. The best way to know that every second of that day, every second of that time is counting is with data. Collect the data to show that the time I'm using is well spent because it's working. That's the way yeah, I like to explain data. I love that. And you know, it's, and it's just as valuable to know when your strategies aren't working. Like I'm always like, God, I want to know that right away. I don't want to do this for two months and then realize it. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it. If we find out, if we don't have data and we're implementing an accommodation, we'll be like, oh, geez, I need to do something else. And all of a sudden you'll throw a second accommodation or a third accommodation all in the name of trying to find something that is working. Well, if you collect data on it and you see that it's not working, then you know to make a change, not just to add to it or something like that. So yes, mm -hmm. data will show you that it is working. Data will also show you that it's not working. And we like to say, if it's not working, then don't keep doing it. Change it to something yeah. else. Quit wasting your time. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, these things are, you know, can be time intensive, even even five minutes a day. That's a that's an ask from someone. So if it's not making a difference, then yeah, don't do it anymore. Let's do something different. Absolutely. And then the other the other cool part about that, I mean, I, I could talk about that all day, um, whether it's program data, individual student data, I mean, you know, behavior data, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's one way to think about it to say that it's not wasting our time. But the other way to think about it is to validate the, the, the results of our efforts. In other words, um, you know, we talk about like pre-referral things. So if the child has an IEP, that's one thing. But if we're talking about a kid that maybe is struggling in a general classroom and we're just trying some things, to have data to show the things that you tried did or didn't work is very helpful all the way around to help to validate the effect of our efforts. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you know, you as a former administrator have been part of many conversations and I, regarding topics like this, and it, it's always a different conversation for me when data is involved. You know, it's like, I think versus I think and let me show you and, and really have yeah. that to back up your opinions. Yeah. Um, the one thing that always bothered me as an administrator um, was when a teacher came and said, I've tried so many things and nothing worked. You know, that statement by itself is empty. It's, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's it's not validated, right? But if you say I tried this 
and this is what I saw, and you can present some data. Then I tried this, and this is what I saw, and you can present some data. That shows not only effort, but it also helps to start to unlock the, the clues that are necessary to say what is appropriate for this child based on you know the things that have been tried or not tried in a classroom. So the words by themselves are basically words, but when you put data behind it, um, especially with respect to accommodations, it shows that the, the impact, whether it worked or didn't work. Yeah, exactly. All right. Before we just talk about data forever, because I also could, <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about the last variable, the fitting into the instructional setting, because I think this is probably the most commonly forgotten component. Um, you know, my background's as a teacher, but also as a behavior analyst, and I see this as a common problem that behavior analysts have when they consult in a school. They come in, they give all their ideas, and then they leave, but they don't think about that classroom, and they don't think about that teaching style. And I always tell clinicians that consult, like, that classroom is like that teacher's house. They spend more time and more money sometimes on that classroom than their own house. And you have to be respectful of that and think about who they are as an educator and what works in their environment. So can you talk a little bit more about that instructional setting yeah. piece? Yeah, I love this piece. Um, kind of like you described. Um, I think, first of all, that when I look back in my career at when I found resistance, I found it around one of two things. Either they just didn't understand. In other words, they didn't recognize the function of accommodations. But more than more than not, um, they, they had that problem with ownership. In other words, I wanted to have this fit what I do. So when we talk about fitting a teacher's classroom, or you can see the same thing can be said about a parent's home, you know, because we send parents use accommodations too when they're working on homework or when they're trying to get their child to engage in conversations or whatever. When you think about an environment, you think about the things that are present. So we talk about um, uh, three different tiers of accommodations. Um, as an administrator, I noticed, and, and it kind of scratched my head until I kind of discovered this, but I kind of scratched my head why I'd walk into one teacher's classroom to observe a kid, and it seemed like everything was just spot on, like the kid was doing great. And then I'd walk across the hall and observe the kid in a different classroom. It seemed like the kid was just completely incapable of doing anything. And you think, the same kid, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden you realize that there are certain things that teachers do in their classrooms to meet the needs of students without them even being individualized for the kid. We like to call them whole group and small group accommodations. In other words, there's things that the teacher's doing in their classroom already that's supporting every kid. And then there's things the teacher does in their classroom to support some kids. In, the, in some cases, that might be perfect. In other words, when we talked earlier about just right accommodations, what if the teacher's already doing a lot of things to support all kids and some kids? Well, does that mean I should go to that teacher and throw an individualized accommodation in there just for the sake of doing it? No, absolutely not. You know, we need to see those things that are already happening. So let me make this real by giving you a quick example. Um, we think about a child maybe that's struggling with organization, right? So maybe the data that we have shows that they're not recording or getting their homework assignments home um, because they're disorganized. Well, I go into one classroom and what I see is a teacher who right before the period comes to conclusion, um, they take a minute, stop class, and they say, hey, everybody pull out your assignment books. Let's write down your homework for tonight. And then they go to the board or put a slide up on the board on a screen that shows tonight's homework assignment. And then there, in that moment, every child is expected to record their assignment. 
see, they're doing that for all kids versus a teacher across the hall that as the bell rings, they're yelling, oh, hey, don't forget tonight's homework assignment is, and they proceed to narrate tonight's homework assignment. There's a very distinct difference between an, a child that's struggling with organization in each of those classrooms. The teacher that's doing some things already, sitting the kids down a minute before the bell rings, make sure they all write down their assignment for all kids is significantly supporting that child who struggles with organization versus the one across the hall that's you know shouting out the assignment as the kids walk out the door. So um, that's a whole group example. A small group, maybe that same idea, organization. Um, as the teacher walks, uh, is expecting the kids to write down their assignment, they're circulating the room just to touch base with five students that they know routinely don't necessarily get their homework done to make sure that they in fact write it down. They're doing that for a small group of kids. Um, again, they're doing things already in their setting that may make it that I don't need to put an individualized accommodation in place. By recognizing that, by seeing that, I'm not going to ask that teacher if it's not necessary to use an individualized accommodation. See, sometimes we just make it happen because we think everybody should be doing it when that's not true. When we think about a just right level of support, as we talked about earlier, if the things the teacher's already doing in their classroom is working, then we shouldn't burden them with an additional individualized accommodation. You know, another one I like to talk about is teaching style. So let's just say that we're, we're going to um, visit a classroom where a gen ed teacher tends to, to use a lot of lecture. And, and maybe it's like a seventh or eighth grade social studies class. And because this is a, a new thing for the students to be taking notes as their teacher lectures, we may see a child with a writing difficulty where we didn't previously recognize there was a writing difficulty because they're now expected to write down notes that they will study for a test. Well, here's a setting where a teacher, because of their pedagogy, the way they teach, um, might be kicking up a writing problem that we didn't previously see because the child wasn't necessarily required to write in the way that was then necessary to take it home and study. So their pedagogy, the practices that they have, has um, kicked up a need that would require an individualized accommodation, maybe for a student that's struggling with a writing difficulty. By recognizing these individual differences, we can fit accommodations to these teachers' classrooms. I've been rambling there. Does that make sense? No, I love this. This is great. And I think this is so helpful, especially for those junior high and high school teachers where there's six teachers, you know, and we see... I had I have a client that I've worked with for many years, and it's like what you talked about. There's certain periods, and he's in high school, that, man, he has zero problem behaviors, and there's other ones where they're like, do we need to change a placement? I'm like, he's doing great in period two. It's period three. That's a problem. But you, know, you right. have to recognize all of that. And if you were to go to that teacher that already has these great organizational strategies in place and be like, hey, we're, we're implementing these organization strategies for Johnny, they'd look at you like you had two heads, you know, like, what are you talking about? He's doing fine. And it would almost feel like demeaning to that teacher. Like, I, I got mm -hmm. this. I'm already doing this. So really taking that time to figure out what's going on in each period with each teacher will, will save you time in the long run, honestly, but also be way more effective. Right. Um, one of the strategies that we like to uh, encourage special education teachers to do, uh, ultimately, we would love uh, gen ed teachers to be able to select and implement their own accommodations. That's one of the things that we do um, here at my company. Um, but 
uh, you know, in some cases, the gen ed teacher is kind of dependent on a special ed teacher to help them to find those accommodations, to help them understand and implement them. So what I like to say is empower them. In other words, have a conversation with them that always ends with or somewhere in the conversation, you say something like, which of these ideas would fit your classroom? Okay. There's a lot of power in that question, because what we're saying is we acknowledge you as a person and we acknowledge your setting. We agree that the child is struggling with a need, but which one would fit in your classroom? It's funny when you just start to use the words that way, then all of a sudden the teacher recognizes their place. They recognize that they have an opinion, but then we also start to see it happen where the gen ed teacher starts to take ownership then they say oh wow i did pick this accommodation to fit my classroom and the next thing you know they're more willing to implement the accommodation because they've been involved and engaged in selecting the one that would fit their room yeah that word empower is so important oh i i, I love that word i mean i honestly I, I feel like way too often um whether it's the kid the teacher the gen ed teacher's parents like way too often they're told they're they're put in a passive seat um, versus being empowered um, and, and empowering the idea of, of lifting them into the solution, lifting them as part of the solution. I mean, just, you know, everything about it makes sense. And we need to be thinking as special ed folks, um, are we telling or are we empowering? Because if we're empowering, then our mindset starts to change a little bit with respect to our practices and the way we do things. Love that idea. Well, let's wrap up on that because I know you and I can both talk about this forever. Um, <laughs> before we go, can you tell everyone a little bit about your business and what supports you provide? Yeah, absolutely. So my name again, Tim Kretschmann, um, Action Driven Education is the name of our company. And we do three things, really. Um, we work with what we call um, the barrier moving mindset. So we help general education teachers, special education teachers, parents and students themselves to recognize a barrier the student needs and then know what to do about it. Um, the second thing that we provide then is professional development around that, uh, that same mindset. And then third is our kind of our, our flagship product, I guess you can say it's called Acomods. And what Acomods is, is it's an online system that's designed to help everybody, gen ed teachers, special ed teachers, parents, even the student themselves, find, understand and implement just right accommodations. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty clever how it works. If you're interested, swing whatever to our website and check it out. Um, but the idea is we want everybody to be able to select and implement accommodations on their own um, as they see and recognize a need in their classroom. Great. Well, we will put a link to your website in the show notes so everyone can check that out. Thank you. That'd be awesome. We'd love to hear from Great. folks well, thank too. You. Thanks so much for joining me, Tim. This has been really fun to chat about all this. It's my, my pleasure, and thank you, and thank everybody out there that's listening for everything they do to empower an effective education for all children. That's kind of our tagline, but we mean it. Um, we know we need just amazing people out there helping and working with these students to make education work for them, so thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. 
Thanks again for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.